Paul wrote about half of the New Testament, and he was a single man his entire life. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ died at the age of 33, a single man. And so if you feel like uh, because of messages from our culture that you as a single person are only half a person or you're waiting for that day to become complete, don't believe that lie because we have some very good examples uh, in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Apostle Paul himself of people who were mightily used by God and in, and in, his, in his kingdom purposes in that state of singleness. So we're going to see here that Paul... Um, after going through uh, uh, some discussion to the church in Corinth about sexual holiness, now transitions to a discussion of singleness and celibacy. Now, you may be worried that I'm going to skip over some of these challenging verses at the beginning of chapter 7 that use words like, uh, what was the word, Pastor Mike, that I was going to have you work into the worship set? You're not going to say it for us? I got to look at conjugal, I think. I said, you know, if you can find a worship song or a hymn that's got the word conjugal in it, we're going to get you some extra credit points today. Um, I'm not going to skip over those words, but we're going to save them for next week because really that fits in with the context of chapter 6 and also the problem there in Corinth that Paul was addressing in chapter 5. So next Sunday is Sexual Holiness Sunday at church. Tell all your friends, neighbors, bring them along with you. We'll get into that discussion next Sunday. You you don't want to miss it. But today we're going to look at this topic of singleness that he really picks up beginning in verse 6. So let's read together now in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, there's a couple things to unpack here right at the beginning. First of all, we see Paul give this little parenthetical statement there in verse 6. Uh, you know, guys, this is my opinion. I'm not issuing this as a command. This is as a concession. He picks up that theme elsewhere in this chapter uh, in verse 12. He says, I, not the Lord, am telling you this. And in verse 25, he says, I have not commanded from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So that creates some challenges for us today as people who come to God's word with humility, with submission. We believe in the inerrant word of God. There are no errors in his word. We also believe that God's word is authoritative. That means that it has permission to speak into our lives in ways that transform us. So what do we do when Paul, who is used by God, by his spirit, inspired by the spirit, to reveal God's truth through his word to the church in Corinth, but also to us today, what do we do when Paul puts in a couple of phrases to kind of dial back the authority of what he's about to say? And he says, you know, this is not a command, but a concession. This is me speaking, not the Lord. Well, what I do with that is I still say, this is within God's holy word. And so as Paul said there in verse 25, he's giving his judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I'm going to take this as God's holy word. And I'm going to submit my life to it. I'd invite you to do that as well. Really, that's the heart posture that will bring transformation in your life. Uh, It would be possible to come as a highly reasoned intellectual American and say, well, you know, really truth is what I believe to be true. And, And that's a worldview that a lot of people have today. Truth is what I construct it to be. Truth is the sum total of my background, the opinions of the friends that I uh encircle myself with 
And that's really how a lot of people come to truth. If you come from that perspective, then you'll come to God's word with this question. Is this relevant? And really when you're asking about relevance, you're really contrasting any perspective that's brought to you to your own internal definition of truth, right? So you're saying, I know what truth is. Is this outside source relevant to what I already believe to be true? If you do that, there's not going to be much transformation happening in your life. You'll find yourself hunting and pecking through God's word for the few verses that already align with your belief system. Oh, prayer of Jabez. Here we go. (laughs) You're going to be prosperous. You're going to expand your territory. That fits with the American dream, right? So we'll like that one. Oh, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you. Plans to give you hope. Plans to give you a future, right? So there'll be a few verses that you'll like, and then there'll be a lot of verses that you don't like. And you'll say, well, you know, a lot of this is not relevant. It was for a different time, a different culture. But there's another way to come to God's word that will actually bring, bring transformation. And that's when you come humbly to God and you say, you are the creator. We began this study on marriage back in Genesis 1 and 2 as we saw the Creator's good plan for all of creation. On each of those days of creation, as he looked at the work of his hands, the work of uh, his speech, let, it, let there be. And each, at each step, at each day, God said, it is good. And then when he created male and female in his image, he said, it is very good. So we look at this Creator God who has a good plan And now we come humbly to him and we say, God, tell us what truth is. We're not smart enough to know it ourselves. We can't trust our own hearts because they're tainted by sin as well. Our emotions and our intellect will not bring us to truth, but the Creator will bring us to truth. And he's given us a blueprint and he's given us the perfect example in his son, Jesus. And his resurrection is the foundation of our hope. So as we come to God's word, We come with that posture of humility and submission and we say, God, show us who we are. Show us what our identity is. Paul himself is doing that and as he gives these instructions now, he's doing it in a humble way. He's saying, you know, I'm just an instrument used by God to bring his truth. But then Paul does get to that point in chapter 9 of saying, follow me as I follow Christ. So there is a confidence that Paul has as one who is sent by God, as one who speaks on behalf of God. And now he gives this concession, not a command, that's relevant to us today. And he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. And then in verse 8, we find out what does that mean? What does Paul mean when he says, as I am? Verse 8, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So now Paul, in this discussion of marriage, of sexual holiness, he's saying if you're single like I am, that's a gift. That's a good thing. That may not be intuitive to a lot of us seated here today. That singleness is a gift. It's a gift that we all have at some point in life. And we should begin to see it as a gift. Then Paul goes on to to unpack this discussion in verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I need to pause there. This verse actually came up in our wedding. Uh, When Heidi and I were married, our anniversary date is October 12th. That happens to be the date in history 
that all of Carleton County, Minnesota burned to the ground, including the town of Cloquet, where we lived for 21 years before coming out here to Aurora. And so at the, at the wedding, the, the preacher knew about this historical event on our anniversary date, and he said, so I guess it's true what the Apostle Paul said, it's better to marry than to burn. So there you go. I'm not sure if he was quite using it in context, but it added a little, a little humor to our wedding day. What's Paul saying? Is this Paul saying, you know, if you are unable to pursue sexual holiness and you're drawn toward immorality, then just go ahead and get married? Clearly not. That wouldn't fit with the rest of his discussion here in his letter to the church in Corinth. I would say what Paul is saying apply to two individual believers here. These are instructions given to believers there in the church in Corinth. If you single young Christian man are powerfully attracted to this single Christian sister in the Lord, and that's a mutual feeling, it's better that you marry than that you burn with passion. He unpacks this discussion a little bit later. We'll get to that later in this passage. But I think that's what Paul is saying. He's not saying if you lack self-control, if you're unable to pursue sexual holiness, then instead of sinning, just give in and get married. That's not the concession that Paul is giving here. I think what he's saying, you'll see this later in verse 36, if you're feeling like Adam did when Eve was created, and he bursts into song there in Genesis 2, And he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. If that's the feeling, single young man, single young woman that are in Christ that you have, then don't burn with passion. Marry this person that you're engaged to. Marry this person that you're thinking about marrying. Fulfill your marriage vows. So now Paul, after after having kind of teed up this, this discussion that, you know, it's better if you can remain like I am, single. He's going to come back to that. But now he goes into a conversation toward the married people in verse 10. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. So now we're, in case you thought this was still Paul's opinion, now he's, he said, no, this is now the authoritative word of God, verse 10. This is the charge. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is a high view of marriage that Paul has demonstrated elsewhere in the letters that he's written to the churches. We saw it in Ephesians chapter 5. Like all other aspects of creation, everything that the good creator made is good, including marriage. 
And so honor those marriage vows. Be faithful to those marriage vows. Have hope even in the midst of that sinful reality where we're still stuck in Genesis 3, hiding from one another, covering up our shame, pointing fingers at one another, blaming God and one another for the defects in our own lives. And we bring all that baggage into marriage. That's the reality of sin. But there's the good news that Jesus sets us free, that that new work of creation that God will culminate at the end of history, when Jesus comes to fully establish his kingdom, when every tongue confesses Jesus is Lord and every knee bows before him, we get to begin to live that out today. And as you look at that spouse that you pledged in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part, God will be faithful to bless you, to strengthen you, even when that other partner is choosing the path of sin, of selfishness, of hiding. In fact, God just may use you to work a transformation in that person's life. There's a high view of marriage that Paul is upholding, and yet there's the raw reality that it's hard. It's difficult. There's, there are long stretches of time of pain that are part of this human experience And marriage is probably the most intense of that. Forgot to mention uh, there in in verse 7, as Paul says, this is a gift that God gives. To some, it's a gift of singleness. For others, it could be a gift of marriage. Really, to think of that in the context of what a gift is in, in the New Testament. A gift is always a gift that God gives by His Spirit with the purpose of glorifying God and building up the body. So if God gives the gift of singleness to you, and you're going, this doesn't seem like much of a gift. This is a defective gift. I don't want, can, I, can I exchange this? Did you attach a receipt? Can I get a gift card instead and pick out something I want? If God has given you the gift of singleness, it's a gift given to you by God for the purpose of glorifying God building his kingdom, and building up his body, the church. Some people receive the gift of martyrdom. It may be similar to the gift of singleness, where you go, I really don't want this one. Put somebody else's name on this gift. And yet if that's a gift that God gives you, he will give you the grace to use that gift to glorify him. You'll find joy in using that gift for his glory and to build up others. Paul experience that himself and he says i wish everybody was like i am i delight in the gift that god has given to me this season of life this stage of life may not last your entire life that may not be a gift that you have forever young people in the third row that were just up here you have this gift of singleness right now be faithful use it with joy don't disdain this time in life look forward to using that gift for whatever season God has determined for His glory. Others that are in this room that are either involuntarily single or voluntarily single, find contentment in that. Find joy. Know that this is a gift that God gives. And the same applies to those of us who are married. Sometimes that gift of marriage, we look at it in the same way. And there's negative messages that hopefully we don't repeat here in the church, but you'll hear buzzing around about the ball and chain, right? 
And this is the attitude that some people have toward marriage. Marriage is a gift given by God, even when the going is tough, even when you're having to apply the message here of verses 12 through 16. And you're called to be faithful, to lead the life that God has assigned to you, to look to the Creator, to say, God, what is, what is the assignment and calling you have for me today? Help me to live that out faithfully. Now Paul goes to that discussion of the assignment and the calling that he has for you in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. There is an assignment that God has specifically for you. There is a calling that he has for you. And he will allow the circumstances in your life to point you in that direction. Submit to him. Pray the prayer from the Proverbs that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. As you find in him your complete satisfaction, your joy, your delight, he will orient your desires in the direction that he wants you to move. And that desire will be after the things of God and his kingdom. It will be after building up his church and bringing glory to his name. Lead that life that he's called you to. Take on that assignment. Pursue it with joy. He has a calling on you. Follow after him. Paul now unpacks this in other contexts. And really the question as I'm reading verses 18 and following, what is the source of our identity? What's the source of your identity? Do you construct that yourself? Or do you bring that question to God and say, who am I? What's my purpose? Why am I here? So Paul now speaking to all believers from various backgrounds, various walks of life, various social contexts, married, unmarried, slaves and free, Jews and Gentiles, but all followers of Jesus. He talks about the real source of your identity, the real foundation of who you are. Verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Did you come to Jesus via Judaism? Well, let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Did you come to Jesus from a, a Greek, Gentile, pagan background? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So we're getting a clue as to where the foundation of our identity is. It's not in your Jewish past or your non-Jewish past. It's in following the commandments of God. It's in that beginning heart posture that says there actually is a creator God. And he has a good plan. And his word is authoritative. It has permission to transform me because I need to be transformed. It tells me who I am, who I was, who I'm created to be, and who I am made new in Christ. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called 
is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And this is not a, an aside from the discussion of singleness in marriage. Paul is unpacking this and applying it to other aspects of life. And he's saying, you know, if he were talking to us today, Paul would say, you know, your culture may have painted too high a view of marriage. And for some of you, you've begun to believe that marriage is the ultimate expression of full, mature, mature adulthood. And though a Christian, though an in-Christ person, you might see marriage as that path to being fully self-actualized. Or, now in the world we live in in the year 2018, your culture may have painted too low a view of marriage. And such a high view of individualism and autonomy and independence that you see marriage as this negative thing that you're either afraid of because of all the negative examples you've seen, or you might see it as crimping your style. You want to keep your options open. You want to live for self. And so you might see singleness as the idol that you're going to pursue. And now he applies it to other spheres. Maybe you come from this particular ethnic, traditional background of Judaism in this case. There, there's a, it's a very popular thing in our culture to elevate our differences to the point where we celebrate those differences from one another. Our race, our ethnicity, our gender. And God's saying, you know, all of that stuff, it's not that it's unimportant, it's not that the distinctions don't matter. It's not that there are not uniquenesses, but there is a deeper foundational reality to your identity than any of those aspects of your background, and it's that you are in Christ. And you have more in common with your fellow believers in Christ than you do with those of your ethnic origin, of your marital status, of your degree of slavery or freedom. Maybe you're a business owner and you're really free. Right? Or maybe you just have a lot more bosses than those of us who punch a time clock. Wherever you come from, whatever background, remember that the foundation of your identity is as one who is in Christ. You are a son of the King. You are a daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are co-heirs with Him, inheriting all the blessings that God has for you. That's who you are. There is a Creator God who's made you in His image, he has an assignment for you. He has a calling for you. Delight in that. Pursue it with all that you are. Don't look forward to that day when that next thing happens. Because that next thing is going to come and go and you'll still feel empty and unsatisfied if that's where you had pinned your hopes. If that's where you had rooted your identity. You know, maybe you're waiting for that day that you get married. That's when you're really going to know what your identity is. Maybe you're waiting for that day when you have children. Maybe you're waiting for that day when the kids grow up and they're the ones that are graduating and you're finally free. Maybe you're waiting for retirement. None of those markers will ever be a place of lasting joy and satisfaction for you. It's when you root your identity in Christ and you say, this is the source of my identity as one who is transformed by the good news of the gospel, as one who is made new in him. That's when you'll find that lasting joy and satisfaction that will get you out of bed every day. And you'll say, God, what do you have for me today? What's my assignment? What's my calling? What's my task? 
That status as one who is called by God to follow King Jesus is more real than any, any other identity marker. That's really the message that Paul is speaking to us here today through God's Word. So why did Paul, back in the beginning of the section that we're studying, why did he say, I wish you were all as I am, single? Well, he unpacks it now as we get into verse 25 and following. Now, concerning the betrothed, uh, let's pause there. The Greek word used here is virgin. I'm not sure if the ESV translators thought we might trip up over that a little bit or if they're trying to tie it into uh, verses 36 and following where there is a discussion about a a man who's considering marrying his fiancée and weighing out the decision. Should I marry this virgin or not? So really, what is a virgin? It's a single female woman. So the word betrothed here, think a single female woman. Concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, point A, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that, point B. Okay? Now, I heard some chuckling there. Uh, okay? Maybe, maybe some of you have known that to be true. Maybe the single people need to hear that verse one more time. <laughs> those who marry will have worldly troubles. Period. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Point C. Paul has really three reasons that he's begun that argument back in verses 6 through 9, saying, I wish you were all as I am, single. And he, he lays out some reasons here now in verses 25 and following. You know, first of all, there is a present distress happening. The world is in trouble, there's persecution, there's hardship. The early church is getting its legs. And in this world, you will have hardship, our Lord Jesus has said. Paul's saying it's true. So there's present distress. Secondly, Paul says, marriage ain't all it's cracked up to be. If you're thinking single person, that all your problems are going to, you've been watching too many Disney movies, the old Disney princess movies where the knight in shining armor sweeps you off your feet. You will have worldly distress if you get married, Paul is saying. Don't pin your hopes and your identity on that desire to be married. And then he finally, in verse 29, gives this third point, that the appointed time has grown very short. What's the appointed time? What's that kairos moment, that that kind of time that's not chronological, but it's that appointed time that God has made? He's saying that Jesus is coming back soon. Just as your identity is rooted in the reality of Jesus' death, resurrection, his lordship, the kingdom that he's called you to be a part of establishing in this earth, that same king is coming back. And so in light of the reality of God's kingdom, that should set the course for our future, each of us. Our assignment, our calling, the gift that he has given to us, at all points toward the Lord Jesus Christ 
and his kingdom. And that appointed time is at hand. So when you look around you, if, if you see this to be true in our culture today, that there is present distress, that Jesus is coming soon, that his kingdom needs to be furthered and established, that there are realities about marriage that are tough and they consume our thinking and our energy and our times, Paul is saying, consider this option that God may have a gift for you for a season, maybe for a lifetime of singleness. Don't disdain that gift. Be faithful in pursuing that undivided devotion to the Lord for as long as that gift is yours. And yet, really, there is that still high view of marriage, as Paul is saying. You know, don't disdain your marriage and say, man, if I was unfettered from these practical needs of trying to keep her happy and run this household, man, imagine what I could do in God's kingdom. Paul is rejecting that sort of a heart as well. Saying God is going to bless you and use you for his kingdom in whichever context he has you. We see that in Ephesians 5 where marriage, the purpose of marriage, the mission of marriage is to give a picture to the world of the love that Christ has for the church. Of the love that has always existed between God the Father and the Son. And we as husbands are called to love our lives in that same way. And as wives, you're called to submit in the same way that Christ willingly submitted to the Father. And by that obedience, we're showing the world a picture of God's love. So that's the joy and the beauty of living in that gifting, assignment, calling for those who are married. So either way, you win. As long as your focus is on the king and his kingdom, doesn't matter if you're slave or free. Doesn't matter if you come from Judaism or paganism. Doesn't matter if you're single or married. It's a gift that God has given to you. Use it to glorify him and be content. Verse 32. Let's see, I think I skipped a couple verses. Let me, let me go back here. Verse, now let's go back to verse uh, 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Have an eternal perspective on your present circumstances. What I'm getting from Paul's message here in this paragraph is that the desire to marry or the desire to remain single are both short-term goals. There's a longer-range goal that we need to lift our eyes up and look to and that's that this world in its present form is passing away. The king is coming to fully establish his kingdom. And when he does, the heavens and the earth will be remade. The new Jerusalem will descend and the good creator God will redeem all of creation for his glory and his purposes. Let's keep our eyes fixed on that. And then those day-to-day -day decisions, desires, things that we pursue, things that consume our thoughts, that divide our attention, will align in their proper place. They will, they will come under that greater reality of the king 
who is building and establishing his kingdom. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Married men, please take note of that verse. Wives, you can give them a little, a little elbow to the ribs there. Honey, you're supposed to be concerned about the things that please your wife. It says right here. Verse 34, his interests are divided. The married man's interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. Like how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things. How to please her husband. Guys, now you can elbow her back. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's really the point of what Paul is saying. If you are in that, that calling, that assignment, that giftedness of singleness, see it as a gift. It allows you to focus all your passions on loving the Lord. You're not distracted by having to dilute some of that love and concern for your spouse, but you get to focus it completely on God. See it as a gift. Don't disdain it. Don't long for a different life situation, but be content in that circumstance. Pursue Him with all that you are. Unfortunately, there are well-intended messages that people will give to single people that are often very unhelpful. The kind of thing that would show up on the front of a Hallmark greeting card. Why are we so bad at saying things that are comforting when people are hurting, grieving, discontent in a stage in life? And I love this paragraph from a little article by Paige Benton called Singled Out for Good. Here's what she says. Warped theology is at the heart of attempts to, quote, explain singleness. She gives four examples of very unhelpful things that people sometimes may say to a single believer. First, as soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. As though God's blessings are ever earned by our contentment. Second, you're too picky. As though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs broader parameters in which to work. Third, as a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. As though God requires emotional martyrs to do his work, of which marriage must be no part. And fourth, before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. As though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. Paul's sound theology here in 1 Corinthians 7 is much more helpful to those who are in that place of having the giftedness of singleness right now. Not really like that third example of what Ms. Benton articulated here. Not that God needs you to just you know, perceive your singleness as your cross to bear. 
I hate it, but somehow God is glorified in this gift of singleness that he's given to me. But really, finding your joy and delight in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, pursuing him above all else and delighting in him, finding the source of your identity in him alone, placing all your affection within him, seeing that as a gift, keeping that long-range goal and vision in mind of King Jesus and his return. Now Paul gets a little bit more specific in the example of an engaged couple. What do you do now in light of what I've just said? I wish you were all as I am. Don't change the circumstance that you were called in. If you were called as a Jew, don't try to become an un-Jew. If you were called as a slave, don't, don't seek your freedom. But if it's given to you, go for it. If you were single, you don't need to pursue marriage to be a full follower of Jesus, to really reflect his goodness and glory. But what about this example of there's an engaged couple? What do you do? Verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, toward his fiancée, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his fiance, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better, says the single guy. All right. I would say Paul is giving us permission. He's really going against some of the ascetic beliefs of his day. So asceticism was the idea that there is a clear divide between uh, maybe two or three parts of who you are as a human. There's your body, there's the material part of you, and the immaterial part. And you could parse that immaterial part into like soul and spirit if you wanted to. Or you could just keep it, there's the physical you and the non-physical you. There's the body... And then there's your soul that's connected with your emotions, your spirit that's able to commune with God. And so within asceticism, there were different paths that you would take if you believed in this sliced up, diced up view of the human person. Some people took asceticism to the point of saying, well, as long as your spirit doesn't sin, your body physically can kind of do whatever, and it doesn't really matter because it's just your body. We don't have any beliefs like that out here in our culture today, do we? If it feels good, do it. The hookup culture, friends with benefits, I mean, not, none of that ascetic thinking has carried forward two millennia, has it? I'm being sarcastic. You can say, yes, it has. Okay, We have some of these same issues alive today. And so Paul is definitely not saying, you know, if, if you're tugged after this 
desire, this passion. If you're like a dog in heat and you just can't control yourself, just go ahead and get married. Clearly not his argument in light of all the discussion of sexual holiness that surrounds this passage that we're reading together here today. But he is giving permission to have attraction be one element of the decision to marry. I'm, I'm really glad about that. Because if he was saying, you know, you have to be totally dispassionate. You can't have any like emotional feelings towards your wife. It has to be this intellectual decision of, yes, I think I can honor and glorify God better through getting married. Because there's a lot I have to repent of in terms of my emotions and feelings towards Heidi in the past and in the present, if that were the case. So I see Paul saying, hey, if you have a powerful attraction towards this person, then trust that God is leading you and giving you that gift and go for it. But I think there's a question of what is attraction in a way that honors God. In our world, really, attraction is purely physical, sexual. It's like the ascetic idea that the body is separate from our soul and our spirit. And we've seen elsewhere in our study of these New Testament passages on marriage that attraction is way more than that for those who are believers, those who are followers of Jesus. So when you are attracted to your spouse, it should be way bigger than just the physical. It should be an attraction to that person that they are becoming in God, an attraction to who God has called them to be, to whom God is shaping them to be. We're called it by God in Ephesians 5. It's really laid out for both men and women. Guys, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to present her as an instrument of worship to God, to make her blameless and holy, to be able to be used by God for his kingdom purposes, that's the way that we should love our wives. And as we catch a little glimpse, men, of who that, that woman that he has blessed us with is becoming to glorify him, we should be powerfully attracted to that and call that out and nurture that and help shape that. Ladies, same with for you, that attraction to your husband as you see them loving you as Christ loved the church. As you catch a glimpse of their future self that God is transforming, as they're submitting to him and to his plan and his ways, that attraction goes way beyond just the physical. It gets to the issue of character. It gets to the issue of demonstrating God's love and all the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Seeing a glimpse of that mission and calling that God has placed on him or her, seeing that gift that he has for that other person. And if you as an engaged person, as a single person, are looking at another single person with that kind of attraction and the feeling is mutual, and there's this passion building, and there's this desire, and that passion is strong, and you're saying, I want to get on board with what God is doing in this person's heart. If that's the nature of your attraction, go for it and be blessed. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better for all the reasons that Paul outlined in the preceding paragraph. The time is short. The days are distressful. And there's a need to delight ourselves in God alone above all other things. Let's finish out the chapter here in verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. 
But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. The reality is today in our culture and in this room, there are some people who are desiring marriage too much and there are others who are desiring marriage too little. Paul, speaking God's word here to the church in Corinth and to us today, is saying, be content in the circumstance that you are right now. Find your joy and satisfaction in Christ alone. Trust those day-to-day, short-term decisions, those temporary fleeting things like marriage, and trust those to God. And glorify Him no matter where He has you today, no matter what His calling is, no matter what gift He has given to you. Don't be anxious about your life, our Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't think about minor things like where your next meal's coming from, what you will drink, what you will wear. Those are petty little temporary things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Things like food, clothing, marriage. You know, what are, what are the, the, the real human needs? To be loved, to be safe. God says those are minor things. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's your real need. That's the foundation of your identity. And if you get those priorities right, if you follow after him with all your heart, everything else will fall into place. He is a faithful God. He knows your heart. If you're struggling in marriage today and you say, yeah, there are worldly troubles and anxiety as a part of marriage, bring that to him and say, God, help me to be faithful. Despite what my spouse is doing or is not doing, help me to follow after you. Maybe you'll do a miracle in my marriage as I am faithful. If you're single today and you're not at that place that Paul is of seeing that as a gift and saying, man, I wish everybody was in this exact life circumstance that I am because it is awesome. I get to love God and not be distracted by anything else. And instead, you're going, this does not feel like a gift. It feels like a curse. It feels like I've been abandoned. It feels like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. If that's where you are today, then we're going to pray together that God will bring you to that place of contentment and joy in whatever situation you are, that your identity is in Him, that whether married or single, you're able to fully devote yourself to the Lord's work and to bringing in His kingdom, that you'll see whatever life situation He has you in as a gift to be used to glorify Him and to build up His church, and that He'll give you faithfulness and joy along the way. Can we pray together? Why don't we stand, give thanks to Him. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is not only relevant, but it is authoritative. And we do come today, once again, as those who humbly submit to you. We thank you that you are the good creator. That you know our needs before we express them. That you know the the doubts, the questions, the fears that we have. You know the distortions of reality that are floating around in our heads because of the messages of this culture that has affected each one of us. But today we do come to you submissively. We come to you with open hearts, with open hands, with open minds, and we say, God, fill us. Speak to us. Fill us with your truth. 
reorient our, our unbelieving hearts. We bow our knee to you, Lord Jesus. We surrender to your Lordship. And God, if you have us in a season of singleness, now or in the future, we know that you will give us the strength we need to find joy in that process. I pray for each single person in this room, each divorced person, each widow, each unmarried person, Lord, that you would strengthen them, that you would fill them with your joy, that you would give them all the blessings and promises outlined here in 1 Corinthians 7, that they would delight in you, that they would find satisfaction and joy, that they would see this life stage as a time of blessing, as a gift from you, as an assignment, that they would be faithful and joy-filled in this time. Pray for others who are... uh, married but living in those times of worldly trouble, going through some trying times in marriage right now, we pray that you would strengthen them. Lord, that you would restore joy. That, Lord, for the, un- the, the, the believing spouse of an unbeliever, Lord, that most difficult topic that was touched on here in this passage, that you'd give the strength to endure. One more day of faithfulness, one more week of trusting in you, one more month of demonstrating your love to that spouse and that, God, you would do your work, that you would draw that unbelieving spouse to yourself, that you'd bring others that would reinforce that life example being demonstrated in their home, that by your spirit you would draw and bring obedience and submission. Lord, that joy would be what defines that home as you do your work. God, we do pray for each marriage demonstrated right here in this room that we would faithfully fulfill your call to us lord to be salt and light in this earth to be a picture of the love that you have for your church that we would be attracted lord to those things that you're doing in our spouse the gifts of calling the signs of the fruits of the spirit emerging in them we pray that the world would know that we are your disciples by the way we love one another beginning in our own homes and extending to this whole body We give you thanks and praise now. We need you. Pray that you'd go with each one of us now in Jesus' name. Amen.